Take a network break. Help yourself to a virtual donut and join us for our weekly dash through IT and tech news. We're going to start with some follow-up and then dive into a new product from Extreme, pricey acquisition by Palo Alto Networks, financial results, and more. We're sponsored today by Backbox. Backbox is the network automation platform for configuration management, device backups, and OS upgrades. And they're now adding network vulnerability management. This new capability is purpose-built for network teams to quickly discover and prioritize network OS vulnerabilities and then reliably automate patching and upgrades. You can find out more at backbox.com slash packet pushers. After the news, stay tuned for a sponsored Tech Bytes podcast with Nokia. We're going to talk about the special requirements to build a data center fabric for AI use cases such as training and inference and Ethernet's still likely to be involved. An AI fabric does have to be optimized to meet particular demands around issues like job completion time, tail latency, and more. We'll talk about all that with Nokia in that show. Uh, and if you like Network Break, check out our other podcasts, including Day 2 Cloud, Heavy Networking, IPv6 Buzz, uh, Kubernetes Unpacked, and Heavy Wireless. It's nerdy tech analysis and compelling conversations about infrastructure, cloud, professional development, wireless, and more. It's all at packetpushers.net. All right, before we get into the news, we do have a couple of follow-ups or FUs. Last week, we talked about the SEC suing the SolarWinds uh, CISO for fraud regarding allegedly misleading public statements about SolarWinds security practices, even as the company internally knew they had serious security issues. Uh, we talked about what this means for security execs at public companies going forward. So like, if a CISO is telling other executives about security problems and being ignored, are they still on the hook for legal or regulatory repercussions? Uh, a listener wrote in to say, per your comment uh, on the CISO becoming a real person, we have a model to follow. In pharma, we have a regulatory affairs officer. This company officer is akin to the CSO of drugs. And should they not follow established practices, they are liable often at a criminal level. However, if it can be shown they performed their duties and were ignored, they are shielded as I understand it. Yeah. And that's how you would expect it. So, you know, if you go to the doctor and the doctor does follows best practices or does the appropriate due diligence or prescribes according to the, you know, the, the standard procedure, they're not liable, you know, right. uh, not personally liable as, as such. The point of these roles is the same thing happens to the CFO. When the CFO makes financial statements for a public company and hands them over to the SEC, they become official legal documents, right? Mm -hmm. And they certify that these documents are correct. Auditors do the same thing. They then go and conduct an audit and then they certify the audit that have, and then incur legal liabilities around that. When the CEO speaks at various things, he makes statements about company strategy. They usually make entirely predictable statements like, our company is awesome. Right. We're going to make so much money. We're going to sell loads of everything. But, you know, that's normally all they say. But those statements are actually required to be truthful in the law in the case of a public company, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the CISO here, um, if it becomes a regulated or defined or an official officer of the company, can you have an official officer? I think that's the point of having an officer, but yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's why we don't call it. Anyway, there's an interesting dynamic is if the CISO becomes an official officer of the company and has to be appointed and you know reported to on various documentation as the custodian of security and all that sort of thing, what happens to the role of the CIO, Drew? Is that there's an interesting tension there where the CIO directs the strategy, but the CIO, CISO directs the security and would actually put controls on the CIO. There's an interesting tension there because the CIO is normally seen as senior to or superior to a CISO. I would but this think, might yeah. see the CISO actually becoming superior to the CIO, which is an interesting outcome potentially. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's important here is uh, if you are in a an executive role responsible for security and you feel like you're not getting uh, the attention you need from other executives, uh, that's again, document, 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 because uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you need to have evidence. <laughs> yeah. You want to be documenting that and making sure that uh, you are you know, free or whatever. And But also, if you are looking to take a role in CISO, make sure that your company pays for your insurance. 
So you can actually buy um, officer's insurance or, mm-hmm. or director's insurance so that if you are something happens and you are liable, um, there are continued con- contingencies or cases like any legal issue where insurance doesn't cover it. But uh, if you are thinking of those roles and you want to be a CISO, you can actually put make it a condition of your package that the company pays for your insurance. Yes. And or they cover the cost of your insurance. You get to select a policy. Yeah. And um, I also think, just assume that that CISO role is now officially the sacrificial lamb of the organization in case of a massive security breach, uh, your head will be on the block. Yeah. Just like the CEO, CEO if he's not, and the pay will reflect that, right? It, it should. It, it should, should, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. If CEO fails to you know run the business along the lines that he committed to, he's expected to be fired. Yep. Right? A sacrificial head. So that will apply to CISOs as well. If the CISO is not delivering or if the, you know, the board feels that their cybersecurity risk is too high and this person's not addressing it sufficiently, they will be dismissed because the board has a responsibility to ensure that. And that's another side of it too. Well, we appreciate the follow-up. Uh, we've got one more. We also talked last week about a new SD-LAN offering from Versa. I think, Greg, you mentioned that Versa goes to market primarily via resellers and MSPs. A listener wrote in to say that uh, they are now actually, Versa is actually doing business directly with customers, at least in Europe where this uh, uh, listener was. Um, said they're making a big effort on a building a sales organization to support that. Uh, and he knows because he's one of their first direct customers. So I guess Versa is branching Which out is- into direct. So, okay, so they've just started doing direct because they listened to me, Drew. That's obviously what's happening. <laughs> that's, that's how you're taking this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I've been saying this for quite some time, that Versa needs to be direct. If you're buying products, um, I've been saying for a while that you need to deal direct with your vendor. I don't believe that any sort of indirect relationship with companies ever works out the way that you think it does. And buying from MSPs or from telcos, sure, you can do that, but I bet you don't actually get an optimal outcome in Versus obviously decided that doing business through um, MSPs and telcos exclusively isn't working for them. No surprise there, um, really. And uh, surprised they've taken this long. So now they're going direct. And thanks to uh, the person on Slack, we keep your details uh, private for obvious reasons. But this was in our Slack channel. If you're interested in participating in those conversations, head on over to packetpushes.net slash Slack if you want to sign up. Just click on it and you can join us on the Slack join in the discussion. It's quite civilized and human over there. Yes. And if you do have follow-up corrections, comments, whatever, we love to hear it. It's at packetpushers.net slash FU. So two options to come uh, talk to us and reach out. All right, let's dive into some news. Uh, Extreme Networks has announced a new secure access offering called Universal Zero Trust Network Access, or Universal ZTNA. And like other ZTN offerings, it aims to combine secure connectivity via encrypted transport, while also enforcing fine-grade access control based on user, role, device, and location. Uh, components include a client agent for secure remote access and device posture checks. You can also use it in the campus. And there's a clientless option for IoT devices. Uh, there's also a policy repository. Uh, which uses Extreme's Extreme Cloud Service, which also offers Radius as a service, uh, and it integrates with identity providers, including Azure AD and Google Workspace, so you don't have to build out uh, an entirely separate identity store just to run your ZTNA. Yeah, this, like, when you read it off from what you've just said, you think, oh, this sounds like a reasonably comprehensive portfolio, mm-hmm. but it's new, right? This is all something they've developed in-house, as far as I'm aware. You took the briefing, so you spoke to the CEO at Extreme, I think. Yeah, well, they've had uh, a NAC solution for a long time um, from all the various wireless companies they've they've had and acquired. Um, so they've had NAC, and now they're extending it out to be more broad than NAC with this uh, ZTNA, meaning more uh, fine-grained policy and access control, as opposed to just NAC lets you have a port or not. <laughs> yeah, NAC was sort of like where we were about 10 years ago. In some companies did it, and some companies didn't. 
And nowadays, NAC is a feature, not so much a not standalone product. And, you know, it comes part of SD-WAN. When you strap it on the back of SD-WAN, it sort of builds into zero trust. But one of the interesting things here is that they're saying they're building it in-house. They didn't make, a, you know, new acquisitions to build out this platform. Right. Do they include SaaS in here as well, like the, the off-prem inspection and threat detection and stuff, or are they third-partying that? Uh, that I am not sure. I didn't get into that with them uh, on the actual enforcement capabilities. So that is a question to ask if you're interested in this. Yeah, my guess is it's third party because that's a substantial build. Like you're talking a fairly substantial commitment in a building that out. That's why most companies that built SaaS have been out and made an acquisition in this space, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Mm-hmm. But the other thing I note is that, um, and this is from your notes, Drew, is that they're using shortest path bridging to do the um, overlay. Uh, that is was part of a separate conversation in the briefing about their campus fabric um, ah, and data right. center fabric. Uh, both use the uh, shortest path bridging SPB, um, which I believe comes from their Avaya acquisition, I think. Uh, but I would have to double yeah, check that. Yeah, shortest path bridging is way cool. It was still, it's an IEEE standard. And it was mm-hmm. a, back when Avaya and so forth, they were promoting that as a way to build an Ethernet fabric that was far superior to uh, Fabric Path or Trill. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's interesting to think that they've brought that over to the campus, and it makes sense. And I think also that mm, the idea of interoperability with this type of fabric is probably less of a concern, because if you're going to build these types of things, you're probably going to bring switches from all of the issues. Like at this point, Cisco has Lisp. Uh, I know Juniper and I think Arista are going down the EVPN path, uh-huh. and Extreme's going down the SPB. And I don't hear too many people complaining about the lack of interoperability. Have you? No, I have not. And I think Extreme's uh, position is, you know, it's one fabric, whether it's data center or campus. So you don't have to, you know, you're doing a separate fabric on your campus versus EVPN VXLAN in the data center or whatever. It's all one thing, which should simplify, in theory, operations. I wonder, yeah, I think it works for Extreme. And certainly the technology is probably, you know, as a technology, far superior to Lisp or EVPN. But uh, whether customers will find that as an objection or not, I don't know. But I think it's good. Yeah. And and good bad good <laughs> there are spb fans out there too folks who've used it and really loved it uh so mm. um it's just for whatever reason never gained as much traction as other approaches um yeah extremes coming here late to this zero trust so i just wonder how complete and comprehensive there would be questions to be asked there about you know if you put it on the on the evaluation list you'd be looking to do a paper evaluation looking at what's missing i think yeah, uh, the green, uh, they also noted they're going to be very aggressive on pricing, um, and you don't need uh, other extreme hardware to actually get this, just, I think, primarily the client software. Uh, so mm-hmm. if you are interested in ZTNA and you're looking for maybe a lower-cost option, uh, it'd be worth checking out extreme. Well, that's not hard. Everybody's expensive in this market. But also, <laughs> if you're this late to market, maybe that's the best way to get in. Yes. Uh, links in the show notes if you want to read up on it. We'll move on. Uh, Palo Alto Networks is acquiring a browser startup called Talon Cybersecurity. The acquisition amount is reported to be around $650 million. The company makes a secure browser to monitor web use and prevent data leaks. Palo Alto Networks says it will integrate the offering into its SASE portfolio. Yeah, I took a look at Talon Security. It's kind of interesting. They make a, a range of different parts of this, but basically they make a web browser. I wasn't able to dig into it to find out if it's a version of somebody else, like whose rendering engine they're using. It's built around Chromium. Chromium. So it takes the Chrome engine and then works it up. And hopefully what they do is they do Google it because the point that they would make is that um, Chrome as a standard product that you, you know, if you just download it and try and control it with say your Microsoft Windows desktop management tools is not very secure. It leaks corporate data all over the place. It's messy. It's unsafe. Users can put plugins into Chrome unless you've got specific policies. 
But I think what they've done is extended this quite substantially to turn it into effectively an app, an enterprise browser app, mm-hmm. so that you can have quite a lot of control over what's going on inside of the browser. And it would be very interesting for BYOD, like people who are bringing their own computers or bringing their own devices, because there's also, it's not just for desktops, it's also for mobile, but they also have an extension where you can install it into a browser on a device. So I, um, I think that's more targeting uh, things like Gmail and Google Docs and Microsoft Word and stuff that's running inside of a browser. There's some interesting stuff here, but I think the real here thing here is this idea that it can control what's happening at the edge and then, of course, send it off to Palo Prisma for threat detection and SASE and inspection and so forth. Yeah. So I read up on it. It does track user activity inside web apps. It can do things like restrict screenshotting, clipboarding, and printing uh, so that you're not grabbing sensitive data. Uh, and the company also says it can manage extensions. So as you mentioned, um, making sure uh, users aren't adding extensions that might cause vulnerabilities. Um, I think this idea of having a browser and then pointing it at their SASE, right? mm-hmm. you know, their CASB type stuff, mm-hmm. that makes that, that seems to be quite a good way forward because otherwise you've got to go and control the browser on your win, you know, Microsoft Edge browser. How do you then send that into Prisma? Would be would it does it make more sense to just say, here's a browser and it's part of our whole platform and it's all this bundled integrated thing? Yeah, I guess the 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 feeling is one, um, you want to be able to get uh, some companies want to be able to get really fine-grained information on what's happening, what users are doing inside the browser. So uh, this has tracking capabilities there. And it's possible that you could get some kind of malicious extension in a browser that, you know, isn't necessarily passing traffic through uh, your SASE yeah. service to be scanned. So it's adding a little bit more security on the edge device uh, as opposed to just looking at traffic running through the cloud. So I understand the the impulse there. I I do worry though, like, and in fact, frankly, most work these days is done over uh, a web browser. So you want to have as secure as one as possible. But I also worry that anything that starts adding controls onto what end users are doing um, that makes their work slow or doesn't work as well or adds restrictions tends to get worked around. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) if this browser is crappy, you are going to hear about it very fast. How many years have I worked inside of enterprises that forced you to use an app that didn't work at all well? Exactly. Yes. <laughs> that was pretty. That was pretty. Whatever. I also note that uh, Talon Security is an, an Israeli company, mm-hmm. um, so got to wonder if uh, Palo Alto got a good deal because of the current troubles. There are various reports that Israeli tech companies are struggling um, at this point in time to operate and also to fund themselves, given the current troubles going on there. So. Maybe there's a there's something happening in there. Whether they're helping or picking them up cheap, I don't know. I, not cheap. I mean, uh, it was founded in 2021 and raised 143 million across two seed rounds and a Series A round. So they seem to have a lot of money on hand. And then Palo's paying more than half a billion dollars for this. So that seems like wow, a okay. really expensive purchase just for a web browser. So I don't really <laughs> it know. It feels like it doesn't it? Like 650 million. million. To be, yeah, I mean. <laughs> Just for a web browser, that just feels like there must be a lot of people in this company, really. Oh, anyway. Yeah. yeah, I'm not. Okay, I take that back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure <laughs> how you value that at more than a half a billion dollars, but uh, I'm just a guy with the yeah. podcast. Not... We're rebadging Chromium at 650 million exactly. with that enterprise. Yeah, that's, that's a good deal. Yeah, okay. Very good deal. I'm sure all the investors yeah. are having a very nice day. Yeah, I think for Palo, this is great because if you're, you know, if you're going down that path, this sort of like, you know, that edge where you're not on the edge is either the SD-WAN appliance, you know, your SASE appliance, but this actually puts the edge right inside of the desktop. But it also puts the desktop control into the SASE management. 
Whereas before you would have had to go to the Windows desktop team and say, I want these controls and I want you to configure this. And this puts it all in one team. I think that's where the win is for Palo. Could be. Yeah, to me, the key value proposition based on the the little bit that I read from Talon is that it's around tracking user activity. Uh, and it, mm. to me, seems like a lot of money for a limited solution that has the potential to cause a lot of employee and then yeah, IT support I'm thinking headaches. Of traders on Wall Street who have legal requirements to disclose everything and track everything. And they used to send it all through a proxy server. Mm-hmm. But now you can't. And this would definitely be a replacement for this. That's true. Yeah, maybe that's a good yeah, use case. You can control everything they do on the official channels. You can't stop them with a personal phone, but that's, you know, that's a different thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe that's the play. Well, as always, links in the show notes if you want to read up on it. A uh, quick pause to tell you about our sponsor today, Backbox. The Backbox network automation platform is introducing its newest feature, Network Vulnerability Manager. As the number of critical vulnerabilities affecting network equipment goes up every year, engineers have to patch and upgrade faster and more frequently, and manual vulnerability management just doesn't cut it. Backbox now combines network automation and network vulnerability and network vulnerability management in a single platform. It's purpose-built for network teams to help you easily discover and prioritize network OS vulnerabilities according to risk, and then automatically remediate them. Backbox supports more than 180 vendors and thousands of devices, including switches, routers, firewalls, load balancers, APs, and more. Find out how you can better automate and protect your network with Backbox. You can get all the details at backbox.com slash packetpushers. That's backbox.com slash packetpushers. Uh, the analyst firm Forrester is predicting that as much as 20% of VMware's customers may jump ship in 2024. That's according to a story in the register. The register says a Forrester blog describes VMware customers as, quote, exhausted by significant price hikes, degrading support, and mandatory subscription to software bundles in which some modules such as NSX and ARIA Suite v. Realize Suite end up as shelfware. Not going to lie, that resonates. <laughs> <laughs> Um, The people that I'm talking to, I mean, obviously the price hikes was something that we've talked about here. We've seen most of the heritage vendors, the the heritage brand vendors have all increased their prices by 30% during Mm -hmm. the COVID times. Mm -hmm. Um, And and the transition to subscription licensing has given them a sort of a way to provide cover to get those expanded prices in. But customers aren't um, entirely stupid. And I think a fair number of them are starting to realize that they're overpaying for what should be a fairly conventional feature. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I think Broadcom has also signaled that uh, more price hikes might be in the future when and if this acquisition goes through. Well, you know, everybody, the thing is that these days everybody can see what Broadcom promised to its shareholders and Broadcom promised that it would extract, I think it was like 4.5 billion in profits out of a company that's turning over 12 and Mm -hmm. a half billion. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, to do that, it would actually have to sort of like, I think triple the, the profitability or certainly double the profitability of the organization. And, how do you expect to do that in within a year or within two years? And really, the only way that you could do that is to cut headcount, which means less services or raise prices. Um, but uh, the three things that uh, the I went off and did a dig around, um, what Hoktan actually said is we will accelerate the pace of innovation through step up and R&D investments. That's one. Now, let me just qualify that. Do you expect, expect him to say that he's going to stop investing in R&D? <laughs> No one says Customers that. Customers won't stand for that. <laughs> They'd be heading out the door. Um, the next one that he said is uh, he actually was on stage giving this, giving a talk, and he said the next we intend to invest much more in the VMware ecosystem and our partners, the evaluated resellers, distributors, OEMs, service providers, and global system integrators, in order to make our products more available and much easier to deploy and consume. That is something that they needed to do. VMware has been cutting back, like it abandoned a lot of its social outreach, its partnerships with VARs 
cut back on sales programs <clears throat> where they were, you know, doing a lot of direct integration. I think they've been really making it difficult for value-added resellers and they've been putting focused on their largest resellers because once you cut the internal headcount in the sales sales stack, you tend to just focus on the biggest resellers who then start closing out all the deals and then your money starts to fall away because you're not covering the entire market. So if you want short-term revenue, Drew, what would be you do? Go back to those resellers you've been, you know, making their lives miserable and say, we love you again. <laughs> Come and back. That might get some more sales. <laughs> yeah, maybe. And then the last thing he said was, finally, we will make ourselves and our products easier to deal with. You know, when a CEO of a company says something like that, just shake your head and go, sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> There's not really nothing. There's not a lot in there except to say, we're going to maintain our R&D investments, which is something you'd expect them to say. They're going to go back to, to VARs and try and, you know, get them to start selling more product. Well, that's how you get a short-term sales boost. But I'm not particularly reinsured. You can take R&D however you want to. Is, is terminating end of life, end of lifeing a bunch of products and then combining a number of products into stuff. You can call that R&D, you know. Right. If right. you want. Yeah. Um, but, you know, right now, VMware spends a lot of money on R&D and part of the profits are surely going to have to come from cutting back R&D at some point. But if they could focus it more around a narrower set of products, then maybe there's something in there for com for companies. Yeah, and something I think that jumped out to both of us uh, in in seeing the headline of this article is, yes, yeah, 20% are going to leave to who? Where, where are they going to go? Uh, the the list isn't very long. Uh, public cloud, no. price, pricing is still an issue there. Uh, Kubernetes, uh, I don't know if you think VMs are expensive, how much is it going to cost you to refactor those applications and train up your staff on Kubernetes? Uh, so... Yeah, yeah, well, what, Nutanix what is, is waiting in the wings. Mm -hmm. You know, Cisco got in there and obviously made a decision that they want to have the second drop solution there. Um, and Nutanix isn't too big, so maybe it's a you know, Nutanix has often been seen as the not VMware choice. Uh, but there are others um, around. You could start people are starting to switch out of vSphere into other you know open source VMs for a lot of non-core. So obviously, some of the certain numbers of their machines could run on vSphere. And that are critical, mission critical, and so forth. But uh, everything else runs on open source VM because vSphere really doesn't do much in 2024. It's only if you get into NSX or Cloud Foundation. But <laughs> as they say, a lot of people are stuck with subscription bundles and they've got stuff they don't want. So, you know, if you've got this feeling that you're being shoved all this product and being forced to buy it for an subscription, then you just don't want it. But you have to because there's one product in that bundle that you want. That leaves a pretty bad taste in your mouth. And I think customers, we, we hear this also from Cisco a lot, you know, where people say working with Cisco licensing is just time consuming, which is expensive. And you end up with a lot of stuff that you don't want. They call it bloatware quite often. Yeah. And uh, it also lets those companies report, you know, oh, we've had amazing sales on this new product. It's just been slapped into a bundle and customers have it, but they don't use it. Right. So I'm not sure that, uh, I'm not, not convinced here. I, I think braver Forrester to go public with something like this. On the other hand, um, I'm not sure that VMware and Broadcom have quite convincing customers that they've got their best interests in mind. Yeah, I think a 20% drop would be catastrophic, and I think that would be actually, I, I can't see that happening, but uh, I do think it's interesting that Forrester did go public with that. It's a, it's a bold number. Certainly a signal to VMware that <laughs> maybe you want to <laughs> treat your customers a little more gently with pricing as the acquisition closes. Yeah, I think so. Uh, there was also some financial news this week. Uh, keep in mind that the Broadcom deal must complete by November 26 before it expires. Um, we're still waiting for Chinese officials to approve it. However, uh, a financial website reported that Hoktan met with Chinese officials over the prior weekend as a company tried to win approval for the VMware mega deal. 
and Broadcom's TAN is said to have hammered out a deal regarding the acquisition during the meeting. So only three weeks left before the deal expires, and if that happens, uh, well, everything that we talked about is off, and VMware is left stranded in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of bucks because there'll be a termination fee, but we're not sure what would happen to VMware if, if the deal doesn't go through. Right. Uh, I wonder if the hammers were actually suitcases full of cash. Just total speculation on my part, but... <laughs> It's a little hard to know. It's it's like <laughs> what know, happens behind those closed um, doors, but I'm sure the negotiations were intense. Well, the the suggestion is that you know you can offer some sort of all of the approvals from all of the various oversight bodies. VMware has had to give various assurances to the UK government, to the EU, to the US government, and I'm sure that China wants to get the same thing. And as I said, you know, it wasn't so long ago that Broadcom was an Asian company, and I believe that the relationships with the Chinese government are better than probably most of them. Could be, yeah. All right, uh, moving on, Arista announced financial results for its third quarter of 2023. The company took in revenues of $1.5 billion, up 28% from last year. Its net income was $543 million, also up over last year. Um, the majority of Arista's revenue is coming from products rather than services, with <clears throat> 1.3 out of the $1.5 billion coming from product. Uh, compare that to competitors like Cisco, who rely more heavily on services like subscription fees to help drive revenues. Um, I did a little looking, Cisco's Q2 revenue results, subscriptions were 25% of its total revenue, whereas Arista's service revenue was only about 15% of the total. So Arista's still doing a good job shipping boxes. And it doesn't really need to change, is really, you know, if you can yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. up 30% year on year, and you're shipping hardware to, you know, Microsoft and Facebook as a key, you know, 40% of the revenue comes from the just those two customers, I think. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, so they do have a problem. Uh, the financial notes that I, I read uh, indicated that share, that Arista share price won't keep rising because people just don't believe that the that Arista has a moat. It feels that you know if Microsoft or Facebook decided tomorrow that they wanted to build their own switches, they could, uh -huh. and Arista would be left you know sort of stranded. And so they have to keep delivering products that those companies want to buy. And uh, so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. In that, but in the meantime, they're shipping boxes like like as fast as they can almost. And the share price was, is basically remaining flat. You know, it's still at 200 bucks. I mean, in the last year, the share price has lifted from, uh, I guess, 130 bucks to 200 bucks. And so it's hard to imagine that the share price would continue to rise up after a 70% rise in the last 12 months. Where else is it going to go? Surely not. Surely it can't keep rising. Yeah. I read the um, transcript of the Arista's financial call with analysts and Arista's very much uh, trying to tout um, investment in AI fabrics as the next big bonanza for them with their their cloud titans, uh, that they'll be able to move a lot of boxes to help these companies build out uh, their AI infrastructure. Um, but they also, at the same time, are trying to say, we're also making more penetration in the enterprise um, with enterprise customers mm -hmm. because they know that they are very susceptible to uh, changes in the wind from those cloud titans. So they're trying to tell a balanced story. But I think the facts on the ground still are that enterprises, uh, Arista is very, Arista's fate at the moment is very tightly coupled to purchases from the, the cloud titans. Yeah, I, I sort of feel like AI Ethernet is a, is a thing, but it's not going to move a lot of boxes, Drew. Like you're talking, they're talking now that AI engines have just reached 10,000 GPUs in a cluster for a compute job. Mm -hmm. um, well, you put eight GPUs per server, so now you're talking, you know, 1,500 servers. That's not a lot of switches compared to your typical data center, which has got 80,000 know, servers in it. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, a, not entirely sure that AI is a significant revenue stream. I don't believe that we will see 
you know, cloud titans or second tier clouds replacing their entire switches with AI ready switches. I'm, I think that's a much further down the pipeline sort of thing, if at all. Why why bother with it? It's easier to make over here is where my AI is done. And you you know, here's a set of racks that do AI over here. You know, and there's you know, right. Yeah, it'll be custom. A thousand, built. ten thousand servers over there Rack. that are doing that. Yeah. And the other seventy thousand servers in the data center are all running on cheaper, more conventional Ethernet that's well known, well understood. Yeah. But I'm not entirely sure that AI, Ethernet AI is going to actually deliver a profit benefit to the bottom line. Um, but we'll see, I guess. I think my reading is also that much of the optimization of Ethernet for AI fabrics is happening in the silicon. Um, so if you're talking merchant silicon like Broadcom, it's the ASIC that really matters, not the network OS or the box it's in, uh, which again is a risk for Arista. They do a great job of uh, managing things like latency and providing you the buffers and stuff that you need. Um, but it really comes down to the ASIC. And if I'm a big cloud customer that wants a bunch of switches, do I care what names on the box mm -hmm. if I have the ASIC that I need? I don't, I don't necessarily think so. If you're the best, if you're the best company at rebadging Broadcom ASICs, that's not necessarily a right. strong competitive position with a moat around it. Yeah. Yeah. Although, I mean, I still think Arista is uh, executing well, uh, given its circumstances, but I do just worry about its reliance on uh, the cloud. I don't worry about it. Their problem, not well, it's true. Not, <laughs> I don't lose sleep over it, <laughs> but in the mental book I have for Arista, that's that's what I've got in yeah, the margins. All my friends at Arista, <laughs> yes. One more story before we wrap. Uh, F5 also announced financial results for its fiscal fourth quarter and full fiscal year. For the year, F5 had revenues of $2.8 billion, up 4% over last year. Service revenue grew 7%, while product revenue grew just 1%. Net income for the year was $395 million. Uh, for the quarter, revenues of $707 million were up just 1% over the previous year. On the bright side, net income for the quarter was $152 million compared to $89 million the previous year. Yeah, F5s are really struggling. Where everybody else is growing, the best F5 can matter is basically up a bit compared to last year. And the general consensus from the analysts that I read about this indicates that most of the upside came from a lower than expected tax rate and a 9% headcount reduction back in April. Mm. Woo, not exactly growth, right? No. More like financialization of the organization. Get rid of the head, get a tax break somewhere, you know, spend some time in the spend money on accountants instead of spending money on improving the product. F5's had a string of vulnerabilities, security vulnerabilities in the last 12 months, uh, right the way from their load balancers, you know, their their application load balancers through to the um Nginx capabilities. There was a bunch of serious things in there. And they've got no particular drive. There's no um, usually their revenue is driven on a new release of a hardware or a new product, an uplift where customers come back and buy more product or refresh the product. And VM uh, F5 doesn't have a strong story here. So the analysts are sort of saying F5, fine, flat, not growing. So the share price didn't really change much at all. And um, But they avoided being downgraded by most of the analysts, although I noticed that uh, Bank of America did downgrade them to a hold which puts most of the analysts saying F5 is a hold, not a buy going mm. forward. Yeah, in the company's official release, it said strong backlog sales in 2023 juiced their revenues, but that juice is going to dry up in 2024. Uh, so the company is predicting revenues for the next year that are, quote, flat to a low single-digit percentage decline, um, but they have committed to returning cash to shareholders. Uh, they say they're going to allocate at least half of their free cash flow to repurchase shares in 2024. Uh, that will boost the share value for shareholders. So in other words, they probably won't sell more stuff next year, but they're going to use other means to keep that share price uh, acceptable. Yeah, making some pretty big claims here. They're claiming that uh, in 2023, they're going to increase the profit margin from, sorry, financial year 2023, they're increasing the, the margin from 16.8% operating margin mm -hmm. out to 24.3% in 2024. 
that's an extraordinary. You're saying you're going to increase your operating uh, margin by 50%. That's a hard ask. The only way you're going to do that is by dropping headcounts, ditching R&D or ditching right. products. Right. You know, it's hard to imagine that F5 is going to be able to increase that margin by increasing pricing or that they've got some sort of a product which is in, you know, huge demand. They really only have two products, Big IP and Nginx, and some security is strapped around it. Uh, I don't see much of their portfolio getting too much hype in the industry, but, you know, I could be wrong. Uh, he's hoping they do okay. Maybe they can get reach that. Uh, again, links in the show notes if you want to read up on it for yourself. That does wrap up the news portion of the show. Uh, stay tuned for our Tech Bytes conversation on the particular challenges of building network fabrics to support AI workloads. We'll be talking with Nokia about that. It's coming right up. Network engineers have a good grasp on how to build data center networks to support all kinds of apps from traditional three-tier designs to applications built around containers and microservices. But what about building a network fabric to support AI? Today on the Tech Bytes podcast sponsored by Nokia, we're going to talk about the special requirements to build the data center fabric for AI use cases such as training and inference. And while Ethernet is still likely to be involved, an AI fabric has to be optimized to meet particular demands. Our guest to walk us through these requirements is Clayton Wagner, Principal Consulting Engineer at Nokia. Clayton, welcome to the show. So what makes AI so special that it has all these requirements that an Ethernet network or an Ethernet fabric uh, has to accommodate for? I think when it comes down to AI networking, we look at it with three unique things that are happening there. Number one, the protocol, right? We're using uh, not traditional TCP IP that we're used to in data center workloads, but in fact, we're using RDMA, remote memory access, which has a, a very particular set of requirements around latency and loss. The traffic patterns themselves in AI are, are very unique. And what that devolves to is a different set of tools that we use to manage those traffic flows in a data center network. Now, RDMA is usually done over UDP. Instead of talking, sharing data between machines, you're actually writing to remote memory location. So you're actually doing a direct memory access. That's what makes this type of AI processing radically different. It's not just, here's a bunch of data, a file, I'm moving that over there or some sort of a you know, database read. This is, I've got memory in my memory location and I need to write it in that memory location over there. That's that's a concept of how different it is. It's extremely different. And you know when we think about what a, a developer might do in order to pass data between two data center applications, uh, standard applications, they might open up a WebSocket and start to write data and TCP and UDP and the congestion control algorithms that we know and love would take care of that. RDMA, because it is, as you say, a direct memory access from one resource to another, that resource could be a GPU, it could be memory, it could be a NIC card. Um, it's just very sensitive to loss. The protocol itself was not designed to handle loss on, say, an Ethernet IP network. And that's why we see more sort of bespoke HPC interconnect technologies that are used in supercomputing and in storage. But, you know, those come with a cost. And so when we're talking about AI and where we want AI to grow... Uh, we want to bring Ethernet into the conversation because Ethernet is a, you know, don't bet against it. 50 years. It's a great <laughs> converged network. It's a it's a utilitarian. It's a Swiss army knife, right? It can do a lot of stuff. I mean, they're using InfiniBand in places, but it's not going to last. Like we've seen one company go out and use InfiniBand, but they're using that because that's what works right now. And they've already stated that they won't scale beyond a couple of thousand nodes. So, you know, Ethernet is where we're going. But I think the other unique thing about AI data processing is the idea that every node in an AI cluster has to synchronize. So when they're processing the data, you know, when you're handing the data off between the GPUs, they do a, a run through a set of data, and then every node has to then come into sync and stop. And until that synchronization is done, those nodes are sitting doing nothing. All that power, all that money is being thing. And the network has to exchange data between the nodes before the next run can start or the next part. And that's part of this parallelism, um, data synchronization. And, but there's also one more thing about AI is this difference between training models and inference. 
That's right. And, and and really, you have to bifurcate those two in terms of requirements. They have a lot of similarities. They use, obviously, the same infrastructure, but they have uh, unique requirements. The training and inference, uh, let's call them phases of AI training, is what we see when we talk about foundational models. These are people like uh, you know Google and OpenAI. They have names like Chat and Llama from Meta. And these are really massive models with billions and trillions of parameters, it means data points, going into these models. And the GPUs chew on this, doing very large uh, matrix multiplication. And you're exactly right. There's this, this idea of collective communication. So every GPU, and, and let's be clear, some startups out there are talking about having 1,000, 2,000 GPUs. Just the week that we're recording this, uh, both Microsoft and NVIDIA have uh, publicly announced that they have uh, GPU clusters that are pushing 11,000 of the very latest GPUs. We expect a year from now, it's pretty openly talked that we're going to be talking about data centers that have 100,000 GPUs doing training. Now, that might not be a single tenant. That might be multi-tenant. There might be, you know, 50 different companies that are using that. But the idea that we have all of these GPUs, which then have to communicate with one another, there's this, this collective communications idea that you, you talk about. And it means that we do a set of calculations and then we take that data and pass it to the next GPU in the chain that's able to further refine and bring fidelity to that model. But those communications really operate, and you alluded to it, on a barrier method, right? They have to get to a point where they all get to an intermediate finish line, if you will, and then they have to start the set of calculations over. There's a high degree of dependency. So passing that data around in a training mindset means that you're passing massive flows. These things are gigantic flows. We want clear channel flows of 800 gig, 1.6 tera is, is on the horizon. Uh, in an inference, and, and, and so your bandwidth uh, sensitive there, and of course your packet loss, extremely packet loss sensitive. In the inference world, you're talking about uh, much smaller flows. This is inferences when you're using ChatGPT and you're getting uh, text back from the chatbot. That's inference, and that's really about latency because every one of those words, believe it or not, may come from a different GPU today. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so we want to make sure, and we're trying to optimize that as well, right? There's a lot of science going on in different parts trying to bring optimizations here. They're making substantial strides in reducing, in, in improving the performance of model generation and inference. Some of the best minds in the world and some of the biggest dollars in the world are trying to make progress there because really what's going to happen, we know from the internet, I've been doing this for three decades now, we know that the finance people are going to get involved somehow. Today we're building to performance. Tomorrow we're going to have to build the cost. And so when you, when you think about building to cost, you think about things like reusability. How can I use this network converge for multiple applications, not just for AI? So I think you sort of answered a question that I've had in mind. If these giant and expensive AI workloads have these requirements, why are we trying to take a networking technology that wasn't designed to be lossless and try to essentially make it lossless or fit all of these parameters? And one of those, it sounds like, is cost. We understand Ethernet. We know how it works. We have skill sets out there. Ethernet's got a killer ecosystem. A long time ago, I worked for a company called Cabletron, and the CTO of Cabletron said, Ethernet is the POTS port of the future. And it sounded so space cadet futuristic <laughs> when he said that, but here we are. Now, it might come in Wi-Fi or some other access technology, but the reality is we talk in frames today. We talk in frames and packets. And so, and so don't bet against that. Weirdly, Ethernet is actually driven by optical modules, all the SFP modules that we put in switches, not by the ASIC so much. All the software, it's the idea that we would have to replace those interface modules with a different signaling format would be unimaginably difficult. And underneath of that, you get down to CERTES, right? I mean, it, PCIe and Ethernet and uh, CXL, all of these really revolve around just CERTES technology. So the industry at large, if listeners have ever wondered why sometimes they see the very same numbers in terms of an NPU, how much traffic it can pass, or you know the type of interface speed on a port, it comes down to the number of lanes of CERTES, of course. And so it's just really trying to stitch those together. And in the AI world, we actually have practitioners who are building uh, greenfield networks. I spoke with one last month. They are literally going through, in again, greenfield, the luxury of building 
building a network all yourself for AI. And they're going through doing link budget for every single piece, including the optics and trying to figure out exactly how many nanoseconds and milliseconds they add. That's the type of performance that we try to get out of a large foundational AI network. The reason that we're talking about this is just to show you how divergent AI Ethernet is from Ethernet. So typical data center Ethernet is kind of high capacity, high availability, lots of short held flows. So you could load balance them across an MLAG pretty easily. Nothing gets congested. The worst that can generally happen in a modern data center is you get in-cast going to a storage array is usually what the most common problem. Whereas AI Ethernet, you can actually have in-cast problems to every node in your cluster. One of the key differentiators that you see with an AI data center network is just the bandwidth that we throw at it, right? It's It would be much more common to have less oversubscription in an AI network from the leaf all the way to the, the top spine. You might be looking at a fat tree instead of having some sort of oversubscription between spine layers. Really, that recognizes that not only is there that east-west traffic, but that in-cast, the problem of sending multiple centers to a single receiver could not just happen at the leaf node, but also anywhere in the spine. It's, it's very hard to predict, almost impossible to predict, the traffic flows in these collective communications. Well, everything's east-west in AI. There is no north-south, right? Because it's all between the nodes in the cluster. For sure. Unless you're loading in data. Yeah, the process itself. That's right. Yeah, yeah, but even loading in data is insignificant. I mean, the things that you're looking for here is very high density, 400 gig, 800 gig or better Ethernet speeds, even to the servers. We're not going to bother about how you get 400 gig in and out of a server, but that's the sort of thing you're talking about. The question I have for you is relating directly then to Nokia, the data center switches that you provide. Are you creating like other people a special new chipset just to do AI Ethernet, or are you able to use your existing capabilities? We're fortunate at Nokia to have a pretty robust hardware engineering program that's you know now in its third decade. We have our own silicon called FP. That's a chipset that's now in its fifth generation on the uh, sort of the mainline side. We've just introduced FPCX which is another form of that, which allows us to get some um, different types of use cases, aggregation through um, smaller platforms. And, you know, that's a services chip that allows us to offer the kind of data center services that you might need, like data center connect or SRV6 and, and these sort of things. On top of that, we have a merchant silicon program, of course, that's very robust. And we can put that in place for your data center fabric, just because the cost of freight happens to be lower there, right? And it's all about, again, those finance folks are going to come in and we really want to dial in the unit cost of not only just the, the traditional application, but to layer AI on top of that to have a truly converged network. So my understanding is that a lot of the optimizations happening for Ethernet uh, to work for an AI fabric are happening in the silicon, in the ASIC. So does the network OS bring anything to the table? Does that really matter? Or is it more about what can I do in the ASIC itself? It does. They go hand in hand. I mean, the OS has to do a lot of the you know instrumentation in addition to the control plane duties and the, and the generic things that a NOS does. In an AI context, it also would, I talked about tools to start. In an AI context, you're not just putting a fabric in place and hoping for the best. We actually have a specific set of QoS attributes that we use to manage the network. Sometimes advanced data center fabrics will use something like adaptive routing, which is, let's say, aware of the AI traffic. The RDMA traffic on IP uses a protocol called Rocky V2. And so it would understand how to multipath that Rocky traffic, just like it might understand how to multicast IP or uh, multipath uh, IP traffic. You know, in addition, because these element flows are so large and very short in duration. They might be shorter than a round trip. You would need to have very high fidelity instrumentation on that. So you wouldn't want to have a probe that's out there every 30 or 60 seconds. You certainly would miss it. You, you want to be careful with sampling type technologies. You really want to have the latest and greatest in streaming telemetry and the ability even to, uh, you know, as we have on SR Linux, we have the ability to, to have a development kit on top of that. So if you were a large operator and wanted to put your own application inside the NOS and tie right into the underpinnings of it, that's that's available to you. So you're saying in an 
AI context, that visibility, that observability, sampling isn't going to really help you. You could miss an entire flow. I think so. I think that these flows are so unpredictable and they, they, they go by in a flash. So you really want to have a very precise understanding of what's happening in your network. It even goes one step farther from that, because as we take these networks, these AI networks and make them uh, largely multi-tenant, think about if you and I are using ChatGPT at the same time, uh, our inference tasks are flying through these GPUs uh, in parallel to one another. Uh, what that means in very large networks is we're going to start to do overlays, network segmentation, where we're going to want to carve out certain GPUs for certain tasks. This is all a part of, again, getting to that lowest unit cost of deployment. As we do that, we're going to want to have the tools built into the NOS and the NPU, the chipset themselves, in order to provide that network segmentation, You know, the, the sort of uh, parsing that we need in order to provide um, the most performing network at the right price. I think the challenge with telemetry, observability, monitoring, visibility, those are all facets of the same problem, is that there's so much at stake with AI. If you're committing millions of dollars to buying GPUs and millions of dollars in developer time and millions of dollars in the you know the necessary servers and hardware, the thing that AI developers are complaining about quite vocally is that right now the bottleneck is in the network in their ability to move data around. And that's why AI Ethernet has such a high visibility is because that's where the current bottleneck is. The GPUs can't move data fast enough between them and the network, and particularly in breakdown situations where there's a some sort of in-cast collapse or some sort of buffer failure, or you get some sort of elephant flow that you know exhausts the available resources in a path. And you've got to be able to know that that happened. If your AI run fails and you just go, oh, well, we'll just go around and do it again. That's not acceptable, especially for public clouds who might be charging, you know, half a million dollars an hour for AI compute time sort of thing, right? So that visibility is absolutely key. And that's where things like SR Linux comes in because that's all built into the features. And then you can expose the telemetry APIs out. And having those best-in-class uh, leading-edge capabilities, um, protocol-wise, right, implemented means that an operator can make the move from having a more traditional infrastructure to something that allows them to see and really instrument and understand where the weaknesses are in their interconnectivity. To this point, if you talk to a developer in AI, not a network practitioner, but someone who's actually doing the machine learning, the notebooks themselves, they have an incredibly robust set of tools and frameworks that abstract the interconnect away, right? So they really don't know what's going on at the interconnect. Again, they're not opening sockets. They're not being uh, prescriptive about how these GPUs communicate. They simply have these very high-level calls. Well, what that means is that if something's wrong with the network, it's not exposed to those developers who are the most important constituent in this whole thing, right? So it's important for us as network engineers to go in and architect uh, both the resiliency model, first we start with that, and then on top of that, the availability and the interconnect model, such that these GPUs can, can talk to one another. And I'm thinking from an enterprise point of view, when you're deploying, you're probably going to deploy this in not entire day center. You're not talking about 10,000. If you're a part, you know, mega cloud provider or somebody who's specializing in a particular thing, you're going to have something, you know, it's going to be different for them. But for an enterprise, you're going to have 10, 20 racks worth of servers that are specially built for this, right? I think in this case where Nokia's advantage is, it's going to be the same switches that you might be using in your normal Ethernet, just configured into an enhanced mode to support this. That's right. Yeah. And you don't have to redo the entire fabric, right? If you have, I'm thinking of healthcare or finance, someone that might have 256 or 512 GPUs, and they have their own model that they're running for internal purposes, maybe they run that once a week. Um, you don't need to take your entire data center infrastructure and convert it over. You can just sort of up-level, upscale the portion which needs it. And then over time, 
as you have uh, lifecycle upgrades in other parts of the network. Certainly, we see that these capabilities will make their way into the larger feature set for data center fabrics going forward. Look, we, we expect a new type of compute here. AI is really showing us a new type of compute that is memory-centric and not CPU-centric. And so I think you'll see the usage of things like DMA technologies grow in other use cases throughout, not just the web scalers, but enterprise and utilities and all the other market segments that we serve. And so having those capabilities in the network will be of importance uh, as you have the opportunity to put them in over generations. I would say that there's a, a need in the industry to quantize down the solution set. We've had a lot of folks in the, in the higher ed world, we've had a lot of folks in web scale do a lot of great research, but now we're at the point where these things are growing like crazy. We've got to actually just have a smaller number of approaches. So you've got some, some folks who are talking about scheduled fabrics. You have people who are studying the QoS models underneath. You have folks who are talking about incorporating smart NICs and DPUs and using admission control. There's going to be several ways to deploy these networks. You know, as an industry, we're coming together. There's, of course, the Ultra Ethernet Consortium is a group of folks who are trying to come together and, and provide some best practices as well as potentially new standards around this. And so I think the next 12 months are going to be more action here in Ethernet development in the next 12 months than perhaps there has been in a long time. Yeah, you mentioned the Ultra Ethernet Consortium. That's a new body looking to build some commonality and maybe even some standards around these optimizations of Ethernet for AI. Is Nokia participating? As we record this, we have just agreed to join the consortium. We're very much looking forward to bringing our unique expertise to that group. Of course, not only do we have a lot of strengths in web scale and enterprise, but we're known for our uh, service provider business. And so we we expect to be able to add uh, and, and contribute uh, to the group. And we look forward to getting together with those folks. Well, I think we could probably talk about this a lot more, and I would like to talk about it a lot more, but we are at the end of our time for today. If folks want to get more details on what Nokia is up to uh, in the AI Ethernet space, they can check out the Enterprise Cloud Networks site over at Nokia.com, and we'll have that link in the show notes that accompany this podcast. Thank you, Clayton, for joining us, and thanks to Nokia for being a sponsor. And as always, thank you, the listener, for being with us. You can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts and our community blog at packetpushers.net. You can join us on our Packet Pushers Slack. Uh, you can hear us on Spotify, and if you would, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.